0: Working our way through the book of First Timothy, we call them books. You know all the different pieces of the Bible that we each—they're each called books. Uh, in 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 reality, First Timothy is a letter. It's a letter written by the apostle Paul to Timothy, who was the pastor in the, the over the churches in Ephesus. And um, it's his advice, but it's Holy Spirit inspired words from Paul to Timothy that we have now uh, to take and apply to our own lives. I'm going to read verses 12 to 17 because that's a paragraph. But we're going to look this morning at verses 15 and 16. So beginning at verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful Putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Verse 15 and 16 again says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me is the foremost... Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. It's very interesting in this, in this, phrase, the, this passage beginning in verse 15, how Paul says it, it is a trustworthy statement. He, he, uh, he introduces what he's getting ready to say by declaring that what he's getting ready to say is a trustworthy statement. And what I'd like to look at this morning in three parts are I want to look at the statement and I want to look at an example then that Paul uses and then at the message that, that Paul is highlighting. So we're going to look at the statement, the example, and the message. First of all, the statement. Like I just said, he introduces this by saying it is a trustworthy statement. Now, it's interesting because he says this five times in the New Testament, and he only does them in the pastoral epistles. Timothy is one of the pastoral epistles. First and Second Timothy and the book of Titus, people often put those three together, and they're actually put together in the scriptures as the pastoral epistles. It's, it's Paul writing to pastors, to Timothy and Titus. And um, is the Holy Spirit through Paul giving us instruction uh, for how to live and respond in faith to Jesus Christ. How to live individually and how to live together as a people of God. They were all three written at about the same time, just about the same time. Two of them went to Timothy. One of them went to Titus. And in those three little books, Paul says five times, it is a trustworthy statement. It is a trustworthy statement. It's very interesting to see what those five statements are. Matter of fact, I thought what I'd do is not tell you where they are. And you can go home and, and try to find them. So that's your assignment. Try to find the five trustworthy statements that are in First and Second Timothy and the book of Titus. But why did he say this? It's interesting. Uh, a Bible scholar named Towner says this. The trustworthy saying formula is a technique by which Paul, in one motion, re-articulates his gospel, asserts its authenticity and apostolic authority, and alienates the opposing teaching that, by implication, does not belong to the category denoted by the term trustworthy. That's a mouthful. But what he's saying is that Paul, several times in these epistles, Pauses for a moment and says, now, this is a trustworthy statement. And what he's doing when he says that is he's saying this is the, the truth contained in this statement is of primary importance. And the truth in this statement is coming to you with apostolic authority. It's come from God via his apostles to you. It's not to be uh, it's not to be taken lightly. And then because in both cases in the island of Crete where Titus was and in the city of Ephesus where Timothy was, there were false teachers who were teaching things that were different. And so when Paul says this is a trustworthy statement, the listeners, as they would hear what what he says next, would realize, but that's not what these guys are saying. And he's showing, Paul is showing that not only is this what i'm saying authoritative it's from god it's different than what you're hearing from these other people and so he says here this is a trustworthy statement and it says right there in verse 15 christ jesus came into the world to save sinners amen that's it that's the first trustworthy statement of the five christ jesus came into the world To save sinners. It's an amazing amazing, uh, statement. It has so much wrapped up into it. Christ Jesus came, it says. Christ is a title that means Messiah. Or the anointed one, the chosen one, the special one of God. So the special one of God is this one. Jesus. We know the name means the one who saves. The Savior this is Jesus of Nazareth, a particular person, the chosen one of God. But then it says he came. That implies that he existed already. Before his birth, he existed somewhere else. You know, that's different than you and me, right? You know that. There's a bunch of crazy ideas floating around like we're all a bunch of little baby angels. And then when you get born, you ping, you pop through the door somewhere in heaven. That's all hocus pocus make believe. You and i don 't exist anywhere. we never existed anywhere. God creates us in the womb of our mother, but Jesus it was different. He came he existed before he 's the second person of the Triune God, and what began on 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 the first Christmas was not him he didn 't begin, but his human existence began. He existed, but then came and took upon himself. Humanity took upon himself flesh and blood. So Christ Jesus came. He existed already as God and came and became a human being. And then the statement is Christ Jesus came into the world. He came from outside this world. He came from heavenly glory. and he came, But he came down in this world. It's interesting even the, the word order in the original language here goes like this. It says... Christ Jesus came into the world, sinners. Sinners is actually the next word. Sinners to save. I like that. Christ Jesus came into the world, sinners. It put the the word world and the word sinners together. That's where Christ Jesus came. He came into this world full of sin. So he came from glory into this sinful place. But he came then, it says, the the statement has a purpose to it. Christ Jesus came into the world. Sinners, what was the purpose? Why did he come? To save. Amen? He came to deliver sinners. And this gives us hope and it humbles us all at the same time. Remember, Jesus said more than once, you know, I came... Uh, Not for the righteous, but for the for the sinners. The doctor came. The doctor comes not for those who are well, but for those who are sick. The ones who don't think they're a sinner never hear the voice of a savior. But if you believe that you're you're one of the sinners. Amen. If you're one of the sinners in the world, then Jesus came to save sinners. And you have hope. You have hope. I hope you see yourself as being included in that because it is humbling. You have to say, yep, you have to face up to the fact that, yep, I'm a sinner. I've broken God's law. I'm not all that I should be. But even though it humbles you and it humbles me, it gives me hope because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen. He came to save sinners. Well, that's the statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And now the example. If you look again at verse 15, he he goes on, Paul goes on, and and it's not, it's more than just a tangent or a diversion. He's actually doing this on purpose, but Paul begins to use himself as an example. Verse 15 again, it is a trustworthy statement. Deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he says, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience. So Paul is calling himself the foremost of all sinners. And you have to ask yourself, as, as I did when I was, I was studying this passage. Now, Paul, did you really mean that? That you're really the foremost of sinners? Or, or are you just kind of exaggerating to make a point? It's an interesting question. Was he really the foremost sinner? I think the answer has, comes in two ways. First of all, in one sense, Paul is showing us here what the experience of each of us is when the Holy Spirit has convicted us of our sin. When the Holy Spirit moves into your life and shows you that you are a sinner, you, you are aware of how sinful you are. Amen. Not, not, not how sinful everybody else is. And the comparisons between your, that you make between yourself and others kind of drop away when the Holy Spirit's speaking to you and showing you your sin. It reminds me of the parable that Jesus told or a story that he told in Luke chapter 18. You might want to turn there if you want. Luke, Luke 18 beginning at verse 9. It's on page 1245 in uh, our Bibles here. Luke 18, verse 9, it says, And he, meaning Jesus, he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Notice who he's telling the story to, the, the parable. He says, he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Here's the parable, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee. And the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, (laughs) adulterers, or even like this, this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get, of all that I get. But the tax collector... Standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man, meaning the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Yeah, I noticed one thing in the, in the way that story is told. The tax collector is beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Did you notice that? The sinner. He didn't say, I'm a sinner. He says, I'm the sinner. That's what Paul was saying. I'm the foremost of all. John Stott says that Paul's language here in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15 and 16 he says it's the language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the holy spirit and maybe maybe it is that you're feeling that way too maybe you're so very keenly aware of how far far short you've fallen from what god's desire is for you you're the sinner well that's a good place to be Because there you'll find the Savior who came into the world to do what? To save sinners. Amen? So in one sense, Paul, by using himself as an example, was really putting into words the experience that we all have. But in another sense, I believe that the text itself here, verse 15 and 16, forces us to realize that Paul is pointing to the particular evil of his sin. He's emphasizing his own experience. He he says foremost twice. You see that there. He he says of among whom in verse 15, I am foremost of all. And then in 16 yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Paul really does mean that in one sense, in some sense, he was the foremost of all sinners. I talked about this some last week, but in Acts 26, Paul is speaking, talking about his own life. And he said, beginning at verse 9. So then I thought to myself that I had, this is before he was a Christian. He says, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme and being furiously enraged at them. I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Paul was hostile and furiously set against the people of God. And you know, he mentioned his own testimony a couple times already in the first short chapter of 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1. Perhaps it would be do as good to read again of what happened to him. You find it in Acts chapter 9, in verse 1. And you can turn there. It says, now Saul, that was his name before his conversion. So Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul... Still breathing threats and murder. So this is this is Paul. He, he's, a, he's a killer. He's breathing threats and murder, it says. Against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, meaning the, the Christians. Both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling... It happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now, this is the one who wrote 1 Timothy, okay? Now, let's keep reading. This is kind of fun. Verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Ananias had no idea what was going to happen that morning when he woke up, got his cup of coffee, maybe fried some eggs. I'm not sure. He had no idea what was going to happen. Listen to this. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul for he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight <laughs> but Ananias said answered uh, Lord I think the ah uh, is didn't make it into the text here but I think he ah, uh, uh, Lord I've heard from many about this man How much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Says says, Lord, you just asked me to go in there and get myself thrown into jail, perhaps killed. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias Departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Praise God. But did you notice in the beginning what Jesus said to him? Well, it, it would be there in verse five, 4 and 5. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, from God's perspective, the one who persecutes Christians, the one who persecutes the followers of Jesus, they're persecuting Jesus. Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And he says, well, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul never... Lost the sense of his great sinfulness that he was the one ushering murderous threats against Jesus himself. In Galatians 1.13, he wrote, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Patrick Fairbairn, A theologian of another of another time said this, indeed, for direct and palpable hostility to the cause of Christ, Paul's sin could scarcely be exceeded. Paul did look at his own life and say that in one sense, I am the foremost of all. I am the foremost of all. But then why is it then that Paul pointed to himself as an example? What was he trying to accomplish? By, by, by using his own experience and life in the middle of this letter. Well, it's interesting, you see. Look again at verse 16. So if, go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. It says, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience. As an example for those who would believe. You see, he mentions here two characteristics of God. His mercy. You see that in verse 16. For this reason, I found mercy and his patience. Paul is pointing to his own example as a way of magnifying the mercy and the patience of God. You see, what he's saying to us is that God's forgiveness is not based upon how not so bad your sin is. Amen? Paul is saying that God's forgiveness is based upon his mercy and his patience. It's not based upon anything there is or isn't in you. Paul's saying, I was the worst. But because of his mercy, he forgave me. And he's saying, now you see there, that's what the gospel is. We can be saved as sinners precisely because God saves people who don't deserve it. Amen? Friend, you might be wrestling with something you've done in your life. And you might be thinking, you know, maybe I... I, I can't be forgiven. Yes, you can. Part of what you're hung up on is, is that you're, you're still thinking that somehow how bad your sin is has something to do with whether or not you can get forgiven. That's not the way it works. Paul's saying, I'm the foremost, but he magnifies his mercy and patience by forgiving me. He'll forgive you. Amen. There's nothing so bad that it's bigger than God's mercy. God's forgiveness is not based upon how bad or not so bad your sin is. It's based upon his own mercy and patience. So run to him. In faith, run to him and trust him and you'll find forgiveness. And I'll find forgiveness. Amen. So the statement. The statement is Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The example of Paul magnifies the mercy and patience of God. And then the message. We have to remember that Paul is doing what he's doing here in his first chapter keenly aware that these teachers have risen up within the church in Ephesus and they're teaching things that are wrong. They're getting distracted. They're going on tangents. And it's not just that they're kind of, um, just distracted and the tangent is kind of just unnecessary, but it's there. The problem is they're placing an importance on this distraction. And they're placing so much importance on this other teaching that they're diminishing the message of the gospel itself. They're watering the gospel down. And Paul is, is saying, we've got to remember the message. In 1 Timothy 1.16, you see this towards the end? He says, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe... In him for eternal life. There's more to this message and actually the other four trustworthy statements include more details. But what he's emphasizing here are at least three elements, three elements to the message. And by the way, this message has come from Christ to the apostles And now it comes to us in the scripture. Amen. So the message that Paul is fighting to keep clear in people's minds 2,000 years ago in Ephesus is the message that you and I have today. It's the same message. And here, there are three elements to the message that Paul is highlighting. First of all, he says there at the end of 16, as an example for those of you Who would believe. Number one. Your part is only to believe. Amen. You get connected to the forgiveness of God. By believing. It's for those he says who would believe. It doesn't say who would believe and really do a lot of good stuff too. Doesn't say that. You don't work for it. Remember, Paul's example is precisely put there to illustrate the fact you don't work for and earn God's forgiveness. I'm the worst and I was forgiven because of his great mercy. Amen. Your part is only to believe. You believe in Jesus Christ. And, and, and you believe the believing is not just, we've said this before, it's, it includes understanding, but then you're trusting. You're trusting. And that brings us to the second element he's highlighting. It says, as an example for those who would believe in him, your, number two, your trust is only to be placed in Christ. Your part is only to believe. Your trust is only to be placed in Christ. Your trust is not to be placed in yourself and in how good you can be and or how, how well you can put away the bad stuff and do the good stuff. No, that's trusting in yourself. Your, your trust is not to be placed in your parents. For those of you who are young, still in the home, your parents bring you to church every day. Every, I lived back in a time when there were things called station wagons. We don't have them anymore. Every Sunday morning, this back door of the station wagon was open and I got in. There was no question. That's just how I was raised. We just went to church. Listen, young person. You're not saved by your parents' faith. Every one of us has to believe in Jesus Christ ourselves. Have you believed in him? You can't trust in your parents or their faith. You need to trust, it says, in him. You need to trust in Jesus Christ. You don't trust in your church. Our church doesn't save anyone. Do you believe that? Does that sound shocking for a pastor to say? Not at all. Not when you know the truth. The message is, it says, those who would believe in him, in Jesus Christ, not in the church. Hopefully, we're helping people look to Christ. But we don't trust in our church. We don't trust in anything else. Our trust is only to be placed in Christ. And the third element of the message that Paul is highlighting here is, your gain is eternal life. Amen? You see there at the end of 16 again? Who would believe... That's the first element in him. That's the second element for eternal life. That's the third element he's highlighting. Your gain is eternal life. When you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ, the one who went to the cross and took upon himself the punishment for our sin. We go to him in faith and we trust him. We gain eternal life. Now, is this good news? Yes, this is good news. You see, we don't go to Jesus just for a fix-it-up for the here and now. And now it's true that with Christ, we find help for everyday life. But it's so much more than that. And the reason it is that is that when we come to God through Jesus Christ, what's happening is, is we're entering into a new relationship. We now have a relationship with God through Christ. And and everything has changed now. And that relationship means we have life in us now. Eternal life. We have his help now. But it goes way beyond the now. One of the great universal issues is death. Have you ever noticed that you don't look the same as you used to when you look in the mirror Now, for those of you who are young and are kind of growing, you're glad about that. But let me tell you, there comes a point where... Yeah, you know. We are aging. We are dying. All of us. But if you place your faith in Christ and only in him, you gain eternal life. A life that that transforms you now and carries you through the grave and then past the grave. You still know that one Jesus Christ and, and, and you will live, you will live eternally the pain and the tears and the sorrow and the perplexion and all of that will be gone and we will live in heaven with the Lord. It's true. It's very true. Your part is only to believe. Your trust is only to be placed in Christ. And your gain is eternal life. Well, there's many implications for this now. We've looked at the statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The example, it magnifies the mercy and the patience of God. The message, believe in Christ and you'll have eternal life. What, What do we do with this? Well, first of all, we have to ask ourselves the questions. Have I believed? And I hope you're asking yourself that question. Have I trusted in Jesus Christ? You can do it. You can believe in him. Because there is nothing you can do to earn salvation, that means you can receive it now. You don't have to go back and try harder this week. You can receive it now by trusting in Jesus Christ. But there's another implication to this too. And that is that we need to participate in telling others this message. Maybe upstairs you can start to bring the lights down and get ready. I have a video I want to show you. But, but as I get ready. If the message is truly this. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Then you and I have the obligation to take this message. And make sure we do all that we can. To participate in getting the message to the sinners in this world. Amen? Let's watch this, this brief video.
1: It's human nature. We tend to save the hardest work for last. So it makes sense that the people in the world who still have never been told about Jesus Christ are some of the hardest people to tell. Maybe it's for political reasons, maybe it's for religious, or maybe they're just really hard to get to.
2: Sean, would you like some coffee?
1: Sure, Carly. I'll have a caramel mocha latte. (laughs)
3: How about black?
1: Yeah, make mine black. Take these people, for example. They live an eight-hour hike away from the nearest road, and through Timo, Carly and I can live among them.
0: Timo is two years of missions training. It's a comprehensive academic study.
2: The foundation of our ministry is built upon relationships. We immerse ourselves in their culture, and we join in what they do so that we can build these relationships
0: and share Christ's love.
1: I can hardly remember today what I studied in a seminary class three years ago. The difference here is that we actually live it. For example, when I'm studying about spiritual warfare and then I go out into the village and I'm interacting with the witch doctor, I see a direct correlation with what I studied and what I'm experiencing. And that is extremely valuable. It's really exciting to see what's been happening in the team members' lives. Um, They've come not knowing what they're getting into and discovering they have gifts they never knew they had. It's an exciting opportunity. It really is.
3: Basically, Timo is a two-year foundation using certain core values such as language learning, simple living, and relationship building
1: to prepare for a lifetime of ministry. How about black? This is just one team, but Timo's placed over 40 teams in some of the most extreme environments, from desert nomads to urban centers, from Muslim areas to jungle peoples. But there are so many people in so many places in Africa that still have no opportunity of hearing about Jesus Christ. Timo will be placing up to 10 teams a year in some of the most difficult places in Africa. Yes, it sounds impossibly hard, and without God's leading, it is. But think about it. What higher privilege is there than to share your faith with a friend who has no other chance of hearing it?
2: You might ask how we get so many teams in so many different places. How does it all happen? Well, that's why you sent us here. To be here at Timo Headquarters outside of Arusha. This is a place that's perfect to facilitate our Bible Fellowship teams. This is a place where we can be involved in helping Timo grow, Helping Timo run smoothly so that we can be here and glean on the experience and the methods and the processes already in place here at Timo to help facilitate and initiate our Bible Fellowship teams. John has a variety of roles here at Engedi, from new road construction to working on cars to writing official so Timo documents. John communicates with our team leaders and team members regularly. Nancy also keeps us rolling in the right direction. She's really heavily involved in the office administration and running the office efficiently. She makes sure we have all the team member manuals, the uh, curriculum books, all the paperwork is in place to make sure that we facilitate our teams right.
3: So it's hard to believe that it's been three years since the Tanzania project's begun. What an adventure since the Bible Fellowship Church adopted six unreached people groups up until now. We have one team on the ground getting ready to bring the gospel to the Ndengareko. So we started out with more in-depth survey work which took us on some really interesting roads and bridges. Uh, We wrote reports, we drew maps, and eventually the Lord took us to the village of His choice. Then came the process of choosing housing and refurbishing it for the team. Finally, the Ndengareko team was able to move in and start learning language and culture to begin paving the way to bring the gospel to the Ndengareko people.
2: All right, we need to take a deep breath. Are you ready? Do you have the stamina to keep up with the Lord's call in the Bible Fellowship Church to reach the next five people groups? The gospel is a radical thing. Jesus is radical. Are you ready to make a radical commitment to Christ? Are you ready to trust Jesus to take you where you couldn't go on your own? Are you ready to trust him to get you through living out in the bush amongst the people whose culture and language is extremely different than your own, to be salt and light amongst the people who are enslaved in spiritual darkness. Or maybe God is calling you not to be a goer, but a sender. Are you ready to be radically involved in fervent prayer and sacrificial giving to see the gospel go forward and to build the kingdom of Christ?
3: Our next challenge was to reach the Wasi people in central Tanzania so the Lord raised up another team among the BFC and we began the process of survey securing housing but why why did we do all this that all the nations would have the opportunity to hear and choose the gospel God's Word tells us that the Lord has chosen from every tribe every tongue and every nation it just remains for us to be obedient and to bring the message to them
2: it's not a question of whether you're going to be involved. It's a question of which part of the team you're going to play on. Are you up to the challenge?
0: Well, this is one way we take this gospel. Amen. You see, the gospel is, the message is, the trustworthy statement is, Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. Amen? And we don't deserve the forgiveness, but the forgiveness can be ours, and it magnifies the mercy and the patience of God. And so we, first of all, make sure, you make sure that you have trusted in Jesus Christ for your forgiveness and for eternal life. If you're not sure about that, Make sure you can make sure today come after the service down front. I'd like to speak with you. But if you then have that forgiveness, now the obligation is put on our lives. What are we going to do with this message? And we're not going to, it's my, it's my prayer and it's my intent to with up to with my last breath. I want to be doing what I can do to make sure that this message gets to every people group in the world. Amen? Amen? Amen. But that's kind of, um, that's kind of uh, romantic and big. What about your coworker? What about your neighbor? What about the people that you bump into every day in the Lehigh Valley? The obligation lies on us for them too. It's the same here in the Lehigh Valley and around the world. The obligation is the same, to participate in whatever way I can to get the message to the people who need to hear it, sinners, just like me. But the mercy of God was big enough for me. The mercy of God is big enough for them. As we come to communion now, let's do two things. Let's remember, gentlemen, you can come forward. Uh, Let's remember... What it is we're doing with communion. That we're saying again that these two emblems, they, they remind us of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. They're reminding us of his death on the cross. And, and by taking them, we're, we're saying, that's where my faith lies. My faith and my hope for eternal life, for forgiveness of my sins, lies in Jesus Christ. It's not the emblems, how how foolish and how sad it is that in some places they get confused and we think that actually the communion elements are that which save us. It's, it's, it's so wrong. The elements of communion are just pointing our attention to what saves us. And that which saves us is Jesus Christ and him alone. Amen. So as we come to this table, let's remember that. And let's, let's make sure that in our hearts, yes, that's where my faith lies. It's in Jesus Christ. We're, we're also admonished in the scripture to be careful not to come to this table without examining our lives first. So we need to examine our lives. And you examine your life. If there's any sin in your life that needs to be confessed, you confess that to the Lord. And, and, and make it straight with him before you partake. And then we will partake. But but let's remember, too, as we hold the emblems, the bread and the cup, let's remember, too, that by God's mercy, we have received this message. Now, let's do before the Lord everything we can to get this message to the other sinners that haven't heard yet. Amen? Amen. Uh, let, Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And oh, your mercy we magnify, for we now have received forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We thank you. Speak to us, uh, move within us as we partake now of communion. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.